sometimes God just needs to put you down and be still. <laughs> Once you yeah. get stillness, you can really focus. And that was when I really started thinking, what would it really look like for me to go full-time into my business? The following is a conversation with Carrie Ann Powell. Carrie is a global business strategist and a champion of small and medium-sized businesses. She has experience as a lawyer and a lobbyist and even helped raise over $120 million for the MLK Memorial. Today, she runs a consulting firm aimed at helping business owners alleviate bottlenecks, improve efficiency, and thrive. Here's her story. Harry, really appreciate you taking the time today. You know, I just thought of a funny joke. It's rare that you get a lawyer's time for free. So really appreciate you uh, you being here with me today. Oh, goodness, Daniel. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited about this conversation. I'll build you later. Yeah, it sounds good. We could talk about that. Um, but on that note, you know, you've had a long and really interesting career and up to some really cool and insightful stuff. But as I mentioned earlier, you are a lawyer. So why did you become one? You know, I really uh, thought that the law, cause the law is so diverse in the way that you can use the law to do different things with it. That's one of those careers that you can just sort of use in many different ways. And what attracted me to the law was like, I really wanted to use it to be able to address some of the things that I thought policy wise mm -hmm. in our country wanted, should be changed. So I, I knew I wanted to be a Washington, D.C. lawyer. I wanted to work in, in um, impact litigation and uh, sort of more constitutional style legaling. And also, too, I used the law in, in work in lobbying. So <laughs> it was really because I really had a desire to um, change, change the world, I guess. <laughs> Say a little cheesy, a little bit idealistic, but that was why I did it. Fair enough. Did you ever see yourself becoming a politician? I did. I considered it at some point. And then I worked with a lot of politicians and I realized maybe I'm not a good politician. <laughs> yeah. Do you think, quick note on that, do you think kind of working as a lobbyist or working in that whole political spectrum is more of an art than a science in itself? That's a really good question. Um, I think it's art and science, frankly. Mm -hmm. You do need to know. There are some things that that you do need to know in order to make it work. There's some sort of ways of doing things. There are some some principles that we have ingrained in our constitution, in the way of our country, and how it is that we can get things done. Um, how you have the art come in is some people are just really good at um, communicating. Some people are really good at getting people on their side. Some people are really good at bridging the gaps. And so that's art. That's sort of where people's skills come in. But there is a way of doing things. There is a way of making things happen. And we have created some um, some systems and some structures in our country. And if you don't know them, you know, it's difficult to make things work. Yep, for sure. So do you think the art is more in the sense that there's only so only a, a certain extent to where you can know the law or a certain extent, uh, you know, where you know certain policies, but being able to really bridge the gap and bring people closer to your call takes, uh, takes yes. you know, an interesting person. Yeah, I think that's where the art is. And, you know, people... People have, there's some things that people are born with, some skills that people are born with, some, some skills that people are acquired along the way. And, you know, you, and, and some people just kind of know it instinctually. Mm -hmm. And those are the people that I think um, can use it for good or for bad. 
But the people that are able to lead and make change happen are really the ones who are able to master the art of consensus building or to be able to get people to understand where they are, be able to know people. There's something around knowing what people really need and what people want and being able to balance those two as well. But I do think there's an art for sure. For sure. Interesting to hear uh, the dynamic around that. I always thought being a politician was really interesting. Definitely not something I want to do. I like talking to people. So this is a, this is a fun, fun thing to do, but always interested in the dynamic between how, you know, someone can know so much, but it takes kind of that intangible skill to really grow something. So really cool that you got experience with that. Uh, On another note, you know, did you have any cases when you were a lawyer that really stood out to you or any fun cases that you found uh, really exciting? Yes. You know, one of my, my, I guess one of the cases that I really started realizing that this was, um, you know, look, the law is not as exciting (laughs) for as many people, you know, might think, but there was a case that I was sort of this idea of what is the first amendment? Like at what point we were, we were, it was a case around a a teacher who was, um, or a textbook writer who was writing a particular um, area of textbooks in, um, in um, earth science, you know, earth science. <laughs> we, I think we take it in eighth grade. Yeah. Yep. Um, so um, there's a textbook that was being written and this was a few years back, early days for me, but in the textbook, um, it, it, in, in a chapter of the textbook, the author said something around the lines of use the word sustainability. And of course, now that's like a buzzword. Everyone feels comfortable using it. Mm-hmm. However, that particular uh, chapter of the textbook, which was sent to, because I don't know a lot of people know this, but basically um, the big states, California, Texas, Florida, those three states are the ones that really determine whether or not, um, because they're the big ones, what textbooks get printed for the rest of the country. Interesting. Because they're the largest school districts, right? So what you want to, so when, so when Texas decides this is a book we're going to, we're going to buy for all of Texas students, then it filters through the rest of the, the, the states, because it mm-hmm. doesn't make sense for a publisher to publish and write another textbook for Rhode Island, for instance, mm-hmm. you know? So this particular textbook was a textbook on earth science for eighth graders. There was a check section of the textbook where the author wrote something around sustainability. The, uh, the politicians in Texas did not want to use that word sustainability in their earth science book. And there was, and it went all the way up to the top of their, you know, tech, the Texas education uh, board. And we were coming at it. So of course we're, we're saying that it, it was a first amendment issue. So we mm-hmm. were bringing the case based on first, it's a, it was a novel concept to use it as a First Amendment case because no one had really applied First Amendment law to this particular situation around what can you, what can you um, determine is okay in a textbook versus not. Mm-hmm. And I remember, you know, I was a junior attorney at the time. And so I was the one who had to go through and read all the transcripts of all of the meetings coming from the small independent, uh, you know, boards of the text, the local boards, all the way up to the to the statewide board, and the conversations that were taking place around you know which books to choose and what words were okay, and I thought to myself, these are individuals who are are just parents and you know community volunteers, 
they're not scientists, they're not teachers, they're not, you know, but they were determining what textbooks an earth science class should be taught. And that's when I really began to think about, you know, I was one of those geeks that walked around with a little small, small booklet of the, of the constitution in my purse for a long time. So I was sort of geeky in that particular way, but it really made me think, what is it that we determine to be our rights and how does that extend to how we show up in other areas of, of the world of, of our, of our, you know, whether it's not just our personal life, it's okay for us to say my first amendment right to say, I do not like what my government is doing is personal, but mm-hmm. how does it extend and how does it impact everyone else? Right. Cause now we're talking about how are you teaching your students and what are we teaching our, you know, what is science versus not and all of that. And it was such an exciting case to be a part of. And um, it really helped me expand my own understanding of it's not, nothing is ever really personal. Everything is how it impacts all of us. So it was a cool case. Interesting. So did working on that case make you want to work? Because I know this actually transitions great to another thing I want to discuss. You know, you worked as a lobbyist, but did that case really impact how you saw, you know, certain areas of just the government or law functioning and want to become a lobbyist? Yes, it it really did because it's it's two and two. You know, because of my motivation, the reason why I wanted to be an attorney was because I wanted to you know impact policy and change the world as I thought I needed to at that stage of my life. Um, I realized at that point that it's not just enough to to sort of impact it through litigation, which again, lit, in fact, litigation is one way in which really it's helped, you know, it really can change the way that how we interpret things. But I realized at that point that um, you needed to um, really put two and two together on how we create policy, how we create legislation, how you explain the need for legislation to our to our elected officials and mm-hmm. how do you help them craft better legislation so that it can impact and, and serve the larger population. So it's sort of two and two. And I obviously people have an idea of what lobbying is, you know, but a lot of times it's because they think of, you know, big corporations giving these people tons of money to take like, you know, legislators out to have, you know, big state dinners. And yes, that is unfortunately a part of it. But the kind of lobbying that we were doing was really around public interest policy and how do you really begin to help to explain what the public's interest is in a particular area of law and why it's important to create policy that is geared towards that. Got it. So working as a lobbyist, do you remember any kind of fun things that you were able to lobby for or any areas that you feel really passionate about that you were able to kind of, you know, get get across to? I hate to disappoint, <laughs> but it the work that I was doing primarily in this lobbying was on food safety and um, international trade. And that's not very exciting. And, and with food safety at the time, again, back in those days, we were looking at, um, you know, the biggest thing on the market was, you know, how do you, um, how do you, you know, make sure that genetically engineered foods were being labeled well and, you know, all of the thing around. That was really what was the hot topic around food safety. Obviously, there were some other issues. And remember, too, like nowadays, you know, folks are just always talking about, you know, health food and, and making sure that food is safe. But that was not the case when I was lobbying. So 
it was very difficult to even get our legislators to begin to pay attention to the need for there to be safety in food. Like, because agriculture is such a large industry of our country, it's very difficult to sort of cut through the noise around, okay, how do we um, not, sh you know, shake up the industry without um, also making sure that our people are eating safe foods. And we found that that was very, very, very challenging because, you know, it really was. And we didn't, I, I didn't, I felt like I didn't find like a lot of success in that. It was very difficult. We had small wins, but one thing I did walk away from in that particular, um, you know, area was the need for individuals to begin to make decisions on their own and to express their, uh, you know, express their desires for whatever safe food or clean food or, you know, whatever to their members of Congress, because in the end, it does make a difference. It's just that it requires a great deal of pressure. You're, you're competing against a lot of voices. And that's yeah. the way our democracy works, which is one of the reasons why I think voting is like the bare, bare minimum of how if you're in a democratic, con you know, if you live in a democratic country, voting is your bare, is the basics, mm -hmm. you know, and then you make sure that you are engaged in your local politics, making sure you're understanding what your city council members are doing, making sure you understand what the dog catcher in your, in your city is doing, making sure that you know what your members of Congress are doing, because that is what true engagement in, in a democratic um, situation looks like. Yep, for sure. Do you think we're heading in a better direction regarding food safety now that you mention it? Well, I think we are. I mean, goodness gracious, this was, oof, not to age myself, but that those were like, I would say when I was doing lobbying and food safety, we're looking at maybe 15 or so years back. And, you know, just having, just, you know, asking people to, to, you know, write their member of Congress around this issue of whether or not we should label, you know, and how do we make sure that organic foods are actually organic and that kind of thing, you know, like meaning when someone says a food is organic, was it really organic? There were lots of different conversations around that. Um, and even how we showed up um, as a country in the, in the international environment, there's a whole entity called Codex, which is an international body that is really a part of evaluating the safety of food on an international global level. And our country was not showing up well. We were, we were always on the side of, you know, no, no more, don't give any more information or less help. And so um, I think now, though, you know, you see this movement towards even with people, you know, um, even if you know, folks are going vegan, you see that's more acceptable. People mm -hmm. who are um, only, you know, who don't want pesticides in their foods, people who are choosing, people are making individual choices, people are growing their own foods. Um, you know, these choices are exemplary of the fact that people are now taking more control over the foods that they eat. And I think that's great. At the same time, there are other things that pop up now, right? You know, what does, you know, does it become a class issue? You've got people who live in food deserts versus those who, you know, have, you know, a whole foods, a farmer's market of this, this at their fingertips, or just people who don't have access to anything but the bodega, you know? So there is now an issue of who, how, who has, who gets access to good food, but I think we're getting better. And, um, 
you know, I was just watching, I don't know, I was on Instagram the day and I saw this great recipe of this mushroom that I had never seen this. I mean, I thought I knew, you know, a lot. You kind of know a little when you're sort of lobbing around food. And this different type of mushroom that this person had used to make this great, um, you know, hero sandwich, gyro sandwich. With, mm. And it was like all mushroom, but it looked so much like a steak and it was so delicious looking. I'm like, 10 years ago, you couldn't find great recipes like that. Yeah. I think things are looking better. Yeah, we're making great to hear making a little progress. Uh, another thing that I thought was really interesting, you know, raising money is always difficult, especially, you know, even when you're doing it to build a company, but you were able to raise it for an MLK Memorial, specifically $120 million. How did you do that? <laughs> Lots of asking. <laughs> well, you know, I will say this, you know, I... I, I happened to, when I got into that position of raising that, it was actually more than 120 because it was 120 to build it. We had to raise an additional 8 million to dedicate it because, you know, they were heads of state and all that kind of stuff. It was kind of a big thing, you know? So it was over $120 million. And I would say when I first, when I, when I was hired on board, we were probably at like 28 million. So if you think about it, um, I think, People always like, well, how do you actually ask them? I had had some experience with fundraising. Sort of rate, I, I kind of cut my teeth uh, fundraising with the United Way when I was like, like my first career out of, out of college. So I was comfortable asking for large sums of money. Of course, you know, for me at that stage, early days, it was you know, two hundred thousand dollars was a large sum of money. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was asking for like two million dollars. So, you know, whatever. Money is money when you start getting past a certain number of zeros. Yep. But. It's less about the asking and more about the strategy, which is one of the reasons why I love the work that I do, because I'm a strategist. You have to really have a sense of who, what makes sense, you know, who are the best people to ask? Um, what should we be asking? What is a strategy that you need to have in order to know that whether this person is going to say yes? What, how do you frame the ask in a way that makes sense, you know? One company or one one um, high level donor might be interested in one thing versus another. I remember I was um, we were making an ask of one of the uh, healthcare companies. Their big thing was uh, patients suffering from spina bifida, children suffering from spina bifida specifically. And they asked, you know, well, we had already had lots of conversations and meetings around. You know, they were probably going to give us the money anyway. But one of the questions they asked us was, so how does you know building this memorial impact? children who are suffering from spina bifida. And I kept thinking to myself, what a strange question. You know, like you have to ask yourself, how is a memorial of Dr. King going to really impact children who are suffering from spina bifida? And, um, you know, I was able to sort of think about it a bit more and think about the challenges that Dr. King had to go through. And he was a young man when he started, you know, doing the work that he was doing, you know, but how does it, how does a, what are the challenges that a, that a child suffering from spina bifida has to face and how can the story of what Dr. King did influence or inspire that particular, you know, child. And so I was able to sort of craft a, a message that I thought made sense and it didn't seem disingenuous, right? You don't want to just like throw mm. nonsense. Okay. At the wind. Sure. And so it's it's one of those things where you have to kind of know what the person or the entity, the donor, whatever is is interested in and what angle makes sense for them. And you present what it is that you're asking in a way that aligns with the things that are important to them. 
So it's not just asking, it's being strategic and doing the research ahead of time. So when you sit down and you make the ask, the ask makes sense. For sure. So who are the best people to ask? I feel like it's a loaded question, but in your professional experience, who are the best people to ask when you're trying to raise this much money for something like that? Well, it depends on what stage of the fundraising you are. A lot of people don't realize it, but most any successful fundraising effort has a quiet phase. And that quiet phase is you're talking to people so that they can get you seed money. It's like any business too. You get seed money. So when we, when, when you, once you get a certain amount of seed money, then you, so that's really a very important stage. Who are the people that are going to be the investing? We're going to give you the seed money. That's a different conversation based on the people that are going to bring you to the middle stage of your fundraising. And then what are the next days are going to take you towards the end? I tell you what, there were some folks that came in, like I'm talking last minute. Okay. <laughs> like dedication was supposed to be in August and like they were coming in in July. I'm not, these people here were people probably that we'd asked before and they said, no, I mean, I had files and files of letters and saying, no, 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 no. And then towards the end, because some of their motivations were, well, they didn't want to be left behind. They didn't want to be the company that didn't give. They didn't want, you know, they, they and then some of them may be more, more uh, risk averse. So they're not going to give money until they know something's really going to happen, right? They mm -hmm. don't want to. But then there's people in the beginning stages who are, you know, either they have a passion for the cause that you are asking for, or they always consider themselves to be leaders, or they are risk takers, or they like to be a part of the beginning stages of anything. So those are the folks you're going to ask in the early stages to put in the seed money. But you realize people that are coming in the seed money, they're going to want to have more influence, more leadership. So, for instance, um, one of the companies that we got in for seed money was uh, General Motors. They gave $10 million into the project early, early days. Well, they, you know, our CFO was a CFO that came from, you know, General Motors, right? Our board of directors had a member of, of the executive team from General Motors and the executive leadership cabinet had the head person from General Motors, right? So you want to think about if you're going to be getting seed money in large, um, large amounts of it, then that person's going to want to have, or that entity is going to want to have more influence versus at the end, there are companies that are like, we're not giving any money until we know this thing is happening. And mm -hmm. then you go for them at the end. And it's the middle part. That's the slog, right? Got it. It's the middle part where you just have to be asking and asking and asking being strategic. So we just sort of had, you know, silos, this industry, this industry, this industry, we knew this industry didn't, was known for not giving, but they were able to give more in-kind stuff. So for instance, um, I spent a lot of time asking this particular, the trucking industry, this one, they were like two, we have two large trucking industry companies in the U.S., right? We have YRC and we have Worldwide. And so we were able to get um, YRC to wrap their, their trucks. And when I say the, the semis that run, you know, that run the country. Mm -hmm. um, to wrap one to wrap ten or fifteen of their of their semis um with some branding of one of the projects that we have it was a children's project that you know a, we called it um what do we call it oh my god kids for king it was like a way to educate children about dr king's memorial and then they, you know they put in like a couple coins in the thing and send some money in the point was that we were you know helping teachers understand about Dr. King and also finding ways for teachers to help to raise money for, with children. It's a way mm -hmm. of teaching philanthropy, right? Well, you know, we knew that the trucking industry was not known to be a generous giver of money, mm -hmm. but they did leverage their trucks oftentimes for branding. So 
they were willing to wrap a number of their trucks that ran around the country and it went around for years. That was a huge win. We knew they were going to give us any money, but to wrap a couple of semis that went around the country, right? Mm -hmm. That was beneficial. So you have to kind of know where, what you can get, who you can get it from, when you can get it and how you can leverage. Also too, like the um, insurance companies, they were one of the, um, uh, one of the, Industries that are very, very generous. However, they're very, very competitive. So you get one insurance company. They were willing, I think it was like, I don't know the first one that came on board. It could have been Aetna. I'm not really sure. They came on board. I think it was State Farm actually came on board and they gave the money and they made a big to do about it. And then once we just said, okay, State Farm came on. So then, you know, you talk to another insurance, well, State Farm's here. Well, we got to, we can't like, let's, and then they want to one up State Farm's. So we'll give, we'll give $250,000 more than State Farm. And then, you know, then it keeps going that way. Travel. Give. So you do want to be strategic in how you're raising money. Got it. No, it's a fair note and really insightful. I know fundraising is definitely difficult, but especially when you're doing it there. So interesting to see the different avenues you took, uh, but you ultimately ended up pivoting to starting your own strategy firm and, Sorry if I mispronounce this, Tra, Trafla, Trafalgar, does that sound right? Yeah, Trafalgar Strategies. Trafalgar. So why the pivot and what was the main motivation for starting that? Well, when we were, when I was, when we were finished building the memorial, obviously, you know, what do you do after you build this huge project? You know, it's kind of like, what next? You know, mm-hmm. originally I thought I was going to go back to the law, but I decided we'd been so far in. I, I just, there are other things that I wanted to do. Um, you know, a couple of headhunters had come my way. So, hey, you could do this, you could do that, but nothing seemed as exciting. And while I was doing it, I did, I had started a business just for the purposes of, I was doing some speaking and some retreats for women in leadership and um, some spiritual retreats as well. So I had this entity out there that I was using to do some things while I was obviously building the memorial. So um, the board asked me to stay on board to uh, help to transition the foundation to an education foundation once the memorial was completed. Mm-hmm. And so while I was doing that, I, um, you know, kind of was thinking, okay, what could we do? You know, I'd sometimes be asked to, for some large nonprofits to come in and do a strategy day with their board to do some fundraising stuff, you know, like what makes sense. And so I would do some of that type of stuff, but a little, and then I would coach a couple people over here. So it's sort of hodgepodgey while I was in the process of transitioning the foundation to an education foundation. Well, I happened to have gotten a little ill. So I had some time off to recuperate from, um, from my health illness. And during that time, I'm telling you, sometimes you, sometimes God just needs to put you down and be still. <laughs> Once you yeah. have stillness, you could really focus. And that was when I really started thinking, what would it really look like for me to go full-time into my business? And at the time, um, I decided I was going to do more work with larger NGOs, strategy, as well as um, some amount of coaching with uh, the CEOs of those organizations and then board strategy. So I started doing that. I went full time into that business. And then I began to pivot a bit more as I began to realize I really, really, really liked working with um, businesses as a whole. And so I started doing more for-profit companies and then that's kind of how it evolved into, you know, strategy with um, small and medium-sized companies. So, I mean, over time, it's been for, it's been almost 10 years now and it's been an interesting journey, but it really was when I was able to pause and say, what next? And just sort of jump out and not saying it was easy to do that, 
because it's scary. You know, you say, okay, you know, you kind of, you know, you have this job, you feel a little safe, it's what you've been doing for a long time. But I knew that there was a next step for me to do. And, um, and when I did it, it was like, you know, hold my breath and jump. It's <laughs> beautiful to hear. Um, why do you prefer working with small to medium sized clients as opposed to the larger ones? You know, I like, I like the ability to be able to impact more. You know, it's harder to turn the Titanic than For sure. if you have a, you know, small boat, a yacht or something. Yeah. Um, and you know the, the size of the companies that I work with tend sometimes to have an employee somewhere between eleven and fifty employees. Sometimes they're you know maybe seventy employees, but that's about you know sometimes about where it lands. Um, and I, I strongly, strongly have a have a philosophy around the way that the impact that small and medium sized companies have on their communities and their nations, and frankly, the world's economy. Because when you start thinking about the growth of a GDP of a country, it mm. really does, it's, it's only through growth. And it's easier for uh, smaller companies to grow, right, in terms of percentage-wise, in terms of, you know, numbers. Revenue. And, and so you're really impacting your, your nation's GDP as small companies. The other issue is when you start looking at local economies, who are the companies that really are, that support the infrastructure of, of a city or a county or state? It's the it's local companies that are paying taxes, that are um, providing the infrastructure for a, a community to thrive. And to me, that's very important. We started looking at the United States, two out of three people are employed by a small and medium-sized company. When you start looking at other parts of the world, it's actually higher. Mm -hmm. You start thinking about the number of companies percentage-wise in the U.S. It's like over 90% of companies are small and medium-sized in the U.S. Parts of the world, it's you know, 96, 97. So the fact that if you, if you really want to make big impact, it's through small and medium-sized companies that you can make big impact. The other thing is too, when I think about who are the people that are serving on boards of directors that are supporting your local little league that are doing these kind of things, these are small and medium-sized companies. They're the ones that are really changing the way in which you, we live our lives, you know? And so I do think that if you can buttress the, the small and medium-sized companies that are building and plan to build, because all large companies were once small. And sure. so we start thinking about, okay, you know, so most of, the, most of the companies that work with me are trying to build a legacy. They're trying to build growth companies. They're not just sort of like, you know, it's a side gig or they're doing a lifestyle company, which is fine if they want to, but that's not necessarily the type of company that wants to work with me. But if they are building something that's going to last, the reality is 70% of companies do fail. And it's not because they're bad companies. 70% of companies do fail in 10 years. One of the reasons why, if I can come and help to make sure that doesn't happen, I think I'm doing something good. If you start looking at companies at scale, two to two thirds of companies at scale, meaning they've hit the Inc. 5000 list, okay? So meaning they have scaled, yep. they fail within eight years. So it's not about if you have money, it's an issue of how do you build a company strategically so it'll stand the test of time that I think you have to, 
it's higher, it's a higher chance of impacting a company that's at the beginning stages of building growth than if they're at another stage, they're larger and it's hard to pivot. So that's why. Really, no, I think it's a fair approach too. I also think, as you mentioned earlier, the Titanic, as you alluded to these big companies, there may be a lot of bureaucracy and it could be hard to make an impact. So definitely resonate with your point on small to medium sized businesses. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting on your website, especially, uh, you say that a lot of times business owners, especially small to medium sized business owners, struggle implementing systems uh, in order for their business to kind of run itself. So how do you as an advisor come in and help them kind of implement these systems that help processes move more efficiently and uh, help them scale? Well, the first thing we do is we do an audit. We, we, we just look at the company as a whole and say, okay, what's going on here? We There's sort of four things we call symptoms of chaos that show up, right? in a business and it's usually, you know, the, the, the owners wearing too many hats and, you know, whatever, they, they can't step away from the business or they're unable to build a strong team or there's a cash problem or they're unable to scale. So these are all symptoms of chaos, but they're not actually the chaos. We've found there's eight components, eight things that really cause chaos in the business. And so what we do is we audit the company based on those eight things and we sort of do a, you know, a scale as to how well or how bad they are based on these eight components. And once we have a sense, so for instance, you know, Daniel, I, I, you know, I can have a headache, right? But there's many, many, many reasons or culprits that could be causing my headache. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people like want to self-diagnose or you go to women, WebMD, you're like, headaches and you're like you got cancer you know like, you know what we try to do is sort of assess what's really going on in the company and then be able to hit it at the pass hit it where the actual problem is sometimes that is a lack of systems and processes sometimes it's sometimes a lack of strategy sometimes it's a great strategy but lack of implementation sometimes it's a bad business model Sometimes it's a good business model, but you have no real sales ac- uh, acquisition process. It, it depends on what the issue is. And mm-hmm. then once we identify what that is, you kind of say, okay, look, these are all the problems that are going on. This is the fire, fire, fire one. And these are the ones that we need to address at some point. And I always recommend to people, you know, they're like, well, I can't stop. My business has to run. So how am I going to fix everything while I'm running the business? You just have two tracks. One track is you run the business as is. In its, in its crazy state. And then on the mm-hmm. other track, you're taking yourself out as an owner of a business, as the leader of this company. And you're saying, I'm going to start addressing this issue that's fire, fire, fire. Start fixing that as you go, move it into the company and then keep going as time goes on. But in the end, it's really about the, the, the real problem the, that happens is that people identify there is a symptom of chaos, but they can't figure out what the true culprit of the chaos is. That's where I think we come in really well. And then we also help them identify that and then be able to figure out what's the best thing to address right now, because you probably have 10 things that are causing problems. But if you fix maybe that first one, it might take care of the first 50% of the problems, you know, and then you keep it moving. Yep, for sure. Interesting to hear about that. You know, on a similar note, I saw one of your tweets that was really interesting in the sense that you said a lot of times business owners think that they can't leave their business or they're worried that if, you know, they take a a step back from just the day to day and focus more on the strategy stuff that 
their business will implode. Why do you think a lot of business owners have this fear? There are a couple of things um, that I have noticed and just on in the field. There are some people that whose personalities are such that they really do get their significance, right? You know, there's the six needs of uh, the six needs that we all need, right? Yep. One of them is we need to feel significant. There are some people that get their feelings, their need of significance met by being the bottleneck in their company. They just <laughs> like to feel like they are, the, like if they don't exist, the company is going to fall. Um, I heard a, a, I don't remember who it was. I think it was um, Ryan Dice said this. He said, the more valuable you are to your company, the less valuable your company is. Mm-hmm. And that's difficult for some because they want to think that they're the, <laughs> they're the thing. So mm-hmm. that's one thing that I've noticed with some, some personality types. Another type is that they don't, they they think they have to wait till the company's a certain whatever for them to begin to build a team that can take over that, that they can delegate. So it's a, it's a weird mindset. You really should start hiring immediately. I'm not saying, you know, bring on like everybody that's on your org chart, but you need to start putting yourself at a out of business. You take putting yourself out of a job in each box that's on your org chart as soon as possible. And mm-hmm. where you bring those folks in, if you think about like, how do you start? You start by bringing in the folks that are the most income generating individuals in the company and you keep bringing more of those on and then you begin to like put yourself out of a business. The goal for you is as the owner of the company is that you really should be the strategic force of the company. You know, you're the face, but if you're doing day-to-day stuff and if you're in the business too much, then there's no way you can step away. There's no way you can step away. Got and the it. third thing is that some you, sometimes people haven't hired enough, like they're not leading their team enough or well. So they may have people on their team, but they're not leading in a way that allows for people to be proactive, to be self-motivated, to be able to do a thing. You want to be pulling people back. You don't want to be pushing people forward. And people aren't like this whole thing about there's like a whole generation of people who are lazy and they don't want to work. That is bull crap. It doesn't exist. So you want to hire people who are, who are self-motivated, who are ready to go. So you have to be like, wait, hold on, stop. You want to be doing that. Sometimes people don't hire well. They hire cousin so-and-so or best friend so-and-so or fraternity brother so-and-so, and they haven't really done a good job of hiring well, or they're not leading well. Those are my thoughts. Got it. No, I think that's a, it's a really fair approach. And interesting to hear that, that sometimes some people's ego to be the bottleneck uh, overshadows or overvalues the need to just you know run a business and be able to step back and focus on what's most important. So interesting stories on there. In your time kind of running uh, Trafalgar, Trafalgar, did I say that right the second time? Mm-hmm. Trafalgar, do you have any crazy success stories that stand out? Oh, gosh. So many, dear, dear Lord. Um, you know, they're always the stories, though. The funny stories are always the ones 
that are the people stories. Um, you know, I remember I tell this story a lot, but it, it always surprised me. I was, you know, a client, she's been with me, her company's been with me for a while now, but early days when they came to us, they were like, you know, oh, well, you know, we're having a hard time, you know, maintaining our clients, like in terms of lifetime value and recurring sales, right? Like, you know, we bring these clients on, you know, they're great contracts, we serve them well, they get good results, but they don't continue to come back. I mean, you know, I don't know what the problem is, but I want to get that. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, that's easy. Let's do an audit. Right? <laughs> While we were doing that, we realized that her team, who was, while they were quite loyal and had been with uh, her company for quite some time, somehow there had been some weird break of trust that she had broken and they just did not respect her anymore. Like they, they weren't unhappy. They, it was toxic environment. And because they were unhappy, I'm telling you, people don't realize this, but if you have a strong engaged team, the percentage, I mean, there are statistical facts around how it can impact. If you, I think one statistic was if you have 50% engagement in, if you have 50% employee engagement, you can increase your revenue to 88% more. So if you have a bad situation with your team, that can really impact the way that your revenues show up. So what was happening was her team was unhappy. She didn't realize it because they had all respected her and they didn't want to whatever, but there was something that went wrong. So they were not, they were not being very positive with, the, with, their, with her clients. So the clients didn't really have any real affinity. So they were not renewing contracts when they were getting results, but they were not renewing the contracts. And mm -hmm. so once we kind of had to go through a big, first of all, sort of a come to Jesus conversation, she's like, really? I didn't realize. And then, you know, when you have that kind of situation, long longevity, meaning it's a toxic situation for a really, really, really long time. Some you can't, sometimes you can't save it, right? Sometimes you can save a few of it. It's like, you know, flesh that's like necrosis, right? At some point you have to cut some of that off and then some of it you're going to have to try to heal and some of it. So it takes a long time to fix a very toxic environment. Mm -hmm. So, but, you know, my point here is that the, what was interesting was the surprise, right? Mm -hmm. Like she just didn't realize it was going on, that it was happening. It wasn't, there are some people who know they have a toxic work environment and they're, they don't really care. She didn't realize it. And it was only until we did the sort of the work to sort of figure out what was happening. And once we figured that out, she was able to fix it. They had this great smooth running team. They're like running revenues are coming, you know, left, right and center. The company is thriving. The company is thriving and her clients are coming back. And yep. she's able to now leave the company. She's traveling more. She's experiencing her life more because she doesn't feel like she has to hang on so tight. So, you know, it's interesting. Super interesting there. I think there's actually a statistic that I saw once, ironically enough, on a podcast on Harry Stubbing's podcast. So he runs a big uh, venture capital podcast. And yeah. one of the guests he had on gave a statistic regarding happiness. Uh, saying that the number one driver of productivity in teams is pure output, which is going to, you know, determine ultimately your revenue and just the very objective success of a company or the measurable success of a company. Yeah. Uh, it's happy teams. Yes. So uh, definitely resonate with your point on there. 
Um, on a more personal note, you know, I always like to get into a few uh, personal questions, and I think you'll have a lot of fun answering these. Um, but what would you say is your favorite book? Okay, this these are just book generally. Floor is yours. Well, one of my favorites, and it still remains my favorite book, is The Color Purple by Alice Walker. Mm-hmm. It's been, um, I, I think I read it you know, early adolescence, and I've just always really, I try to go back and read that book ever so often, and just the writing is so vivid. And obviously, I've seen all the various iterations of it on this, you know, there was like the movie, and then there was you know, the stage on Broadway, and then there's like a new iteration of it now. But I always go back to the book. It's a good book. Got it. Interesting. I appreciate to hear that. Yeah. Who's your dream dinner guest? Oh, my dream dinner guest. Can I have two? You can have, sure. I would love to have dinner with Martha Stewart and Oprah Winfrey together. <laughs> That's an interesting, uh, interesting combination. Yes. I love them. I love the fact that they were, I love Martha Stewart because she was able to make something that was considered women's work. Anything that's called women's work is always devalued in society, right? But she Mm -hmm. was able to make an entire industry of women's work and everything now you see, any cooking show, anything, it's all sort of stemming, obviously. I mean, there was, you know, uh, before then there were many other folks who were doing different things, but she pulled all of the women's work together in one big media company and um and she had i mean she went to prison for crying out loud and still came back out and is doing her thing and even now she's still doing amazing things with products and i think that's one of the reasons i really admire her as a businesswoman and then i think oprah is the same time too because again here's someone who used the art of gab i mean you know it's all about the talking and that was always sort of talk shows were always sort of women who were at home doing being housewives would watch these talk shows and so it wasn't really considered a you know really viable thing and she was able to leverage that into this huge media company and of course a great Mm -hmm. influence so i i love it i love them both yeah for sure if anyone can can give away cars to their entire audience i'm sure they'll they'll leave an impact uh, on many people for sure um (laughs) On another note, on a similar note, who would you say has been the most influential to your development in your career? You know, it's so funny. I had someone ask me that, and I, I automatically went to my mom. Well, the question was, who's my biggest influence in my life, you know, generally? And I sort of said my mom. But then I started sort of talking about my dad, and I was like, you know, I would have to say um, my dad in terms of my career, um, primarily because um, – who I saw him to be and how he showed up in the world in many different ways and the values of the importance of civic engagement. You're not just someone who does a job and does work and gets paid for it. That's not how I was ever raised. I always was raised of how am I showing up in the world on the larger scale and how am I adding value and how am I making impact? And all of those play into how, how my, how I get, compensated for my existence in the world and Mm -hmm. so i think um seeing him navigate that really well in life and make an impact and still be a loving human being i think has impacted the way that i made decisions in my career and in my business it's beautiful to hear what would you say brings you the most happiness in life oh my family (laughs) 
my friends, the people I love. I just, when I'm spending time with people that I love and care about, that's, that's it. So it's a beautiful answer. And, uh, you know, on a parting note, you've done a lot of really cool stuff and built a career as a lawyer, a lobbyist, and now a successful consultant. Um, but, you know, unless until proven otherwise, we're all, we all leave this world at some point or another. Uh, when that time comes, what do you want to be remembered for? I made it better somehow that my existence added value and didn't take away. Uh, I think it's a, it's a beautiful final answer and maybe something we could all strive for, but Carrie Ann, really appreciate you taking the time. Daniel, what a joy. Thank you for the conversation. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Carrie Ann Powell. If you enjoyed the episode, rate the show on Spotify, drop a comment on YouTube and subscribe.